0: following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, if you're just joining us, we have been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians Wow, it's loud out there today. Um, the book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's been such a refreshing season for us. We've, I think we started back in uh, April, and we are just now hitting the halfway point of this, this series. And really the whole focus of the sermon series has been identity formation. It's trying to unpack and understand who we really are at the core of us when our faith is in Jesus. Now, we are at the halfway point, which means we're shifting gears here, and there's a convenient break that happens in between uh, chapters 1 and 3 and chapters 4 and 6. It literally marks the middle of the book, but there's also this big shift that happens where the focus of Paul, the apostle who's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and those around, because it's a circular letter, letter, it's meant to be passed from person to person, from place to place, to go around so this good news of the gospel and how this changes everything about us would be spread out throughout all of the world And, and it starts out in the east. Uh, In the the Near East, and the Far East, and it goes and spreads and spreads. And here we are right now in Moline, Illinois, huddling around the same word of God that was given to his people over 2,000 years ago. Right? This is pretty crazy. And just as much as it had an impact on their life, then it has an even greater so, I think, as as we have some time to unpack and explore these big, grandiose ideas about the gospel and how it shapes our life, that it has the same kind of impact uh, with us. Now, the gears that we're shifting here is we're going from the indicatives into the imperatives. So chapters one through three are all about the indicatives. An indicative is a fact statement. It's saying this is true. This is what's most true about you. This is your identity when your faith is in Jesus. This is who you are. This is what you are. And then Paul takes, uh, he shifts gears into chapters 4 through 6, and he says, this is how you live into that identity. It's the imperatives. Here's what it looks like to act upon this. And this echoes uh, our, our Savior Jesus when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, I want you not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Um, it, it echoes uh, James, who is the brother of Jesus, who says, listen, I don't want you to just be hearers of the words. I want you to be doers of the word. Now listen, if, if Jesus is able to convince his brother that he is the son of God, that he is, he is the king of the cosmos. And James can say, listen, hey, you should follow Jesus, listen to his words, do what he says. That's a pretty big, uh, that's, a, that's pretty amazing, because I've been trying to convince my brothers for a long time that I am the son of God, that I am the Messiah, and they should listen and do what I say. But here we see Jesus actually is who he says he is, and his own brother James is saying, follow Sue, hear the word, do the word. And Paul gets right to this at the beginning. It's a very distinct shift here as we look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's saying, walk it out. This is your identity now. Let's, Let's walk it out. Let's make this happen. Let's demonstrate. Let's show what this identity really means when you put it into practice. Now, the irony in Paul saying walk it out is that he says right here, he's a prisoner of the Lord. <laughs> he, he's in chains. Paul's not doing a lot of walking while he's locked up in jail. But what he's talking about here is not a literal walk, All right, This is not a swagger. This isn't, this isn't some sort of, you know, that's not at all what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the manner in which you live your life. That's what it means. You, even back going to chapter 2, he talks about this is the way that you used to walk, according to passions, according to flesh, according to sinful desires that we have. But now he's saying walk in a manner that's completely different from your previous life. If you're a Christian, it means you are an apprentice of Jesus. That's Dallas Willard's term, right? It's not just that we're followers of Jesus or believers in Jesus, that we actually apprentice Jesus. So, like, get get this idea in your mind. If you're working in the trades and somebody has an apprentice, that apprentice is going to follow that tradesman around, learning every little bit, every little nook and cranny of the industry so that they can go out and and reproduce what that, that master was doing this. This is what it means to live the Christian life: that we follow Jesus and let Him have His way in every little nook and cranny of our life, and show that that we are emulating, we're practicing the way of Jesus. And when we do this, you're going to live a different kind of life. There's going to be a, a, a stark contrast between the life you live before Jesus and the life you live now with Jesus. And, and verse 1 actually sets something straight that's very, very important, very very critical for us to understand as we come and, and try to wrap our minds around this gospel identity. Paul tells us here, he says, he commands us actually, he urges us to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling, but he doesn't say walk in a manner that's worthy to prove that you're worthy of a calling. He says walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've already been called, in fact, if you go back to chapter 1, he shows this to us. Like He says, like, you've been, you've been, you are chosen. You've been predestined. God has, has, you were once far away. God has brought you near. He, he's saying you have already been called into this identity if your faith is in Christ. You don't have to prove it. And what this shows us is that there's a, a vast difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says that you have to achieve your identity by earning it. It says, I am what I do, or I obey, therefore I'm loved. That my obedience, my performance shows that I'm worthy of that calling, but that's religion. And the the problem with this is if we operate by this way, what happens when you fail? What happens when you set out to do the obedient thing, but you you fall flat on your face and you can't do it? You, you You just don't do it. If you're operating by the rules of religion, your identity starts to fall apart. But in the gospel, it's the inverse. The gospel says, I am loved, therefore I obey. Right, the, the gospel, going back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, that you've been adopted. God has, has, has set his love upon us, brought us in by his great mercy with which he loved us. He's made us to come alive in Christ. We've all, this has already happened for us. And because this is already our reality, it is now that we live into obedience. It's because I'm loved, I now obey. This love that Jesus has for us recreates us. It, it, it's a recreation of who we are. Paul, I've gone to this already before. I think in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, you know, you're a new creation. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And here Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not because of my performance. It's not because I put a good life together for myself. It's by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul gets it. As he's writing this, he gets it. He knows that his being proceeds his doing. Who he is comes before what God asks him to do. And because our identity is solidified by grace, we now live out of that new identity. This is what it means to live the Christian life. We're not living to achieve an identity, we're living out of an identity that's been given to us by grace. And Paul here, this is awesome. You know, last week I, I was talking about Paul brought us to this place where he tells us pray big prayers. Test God, put him to the test. Ask big things. See that he's able to do far greater, uh, more abundantly than what you can ever think or imagine or ask for. He, he, and one of the pieces of that is having this gospel imagination to re-envision what God could do if he really had his way with us. Now, Paul here is actually showing us. He's modeling this for us. Because he's using his gospel imagination to re-envision life as if our Christian identity were true. Like if this is really true about us, how does this change? How does this bear different implications on different areas of our life? And, and he's going to, as we go through the last half of this, this book of the Bible... We're going to see that he he touches on marriage, he touches on parenting, he talks about our relationship to power, whether in the church or in the government structures. He talks about character and virtue, the way that we look at the world and how we see the world. He's going to talk about all of these things, but it's interesting. The first area where Paul takes us to re-envision life, Like the first place that he goes and deploys this this reborn um, sense of imagination, this gospel imagination, and it's the place where he spends the most time talking about, the the greatest talked about topic here in the book of Ephesians. It's church life. It's church life. Paul spends the most time, and it's the first thing that he talks about, is how you live your life as part of the church. Now, this actually should shock us a little bit, um, and, and as we move through it and unpack it, I think it will um, to some degree because I think most of us, there's this general, if you've grown, grown up in the American church, there's this, this general um, hierarchy of life, of priorities. What's number one in your life? So one of the common things that you hear is, okay, first, God is number one in my life. That's great. Thumbs up. And then we say, well, number two in my life is my family. And then number three in my life, well, actually, I think number three and number four can sometimes be interchangeable depending on who you are. But number three, I'm going to say the church, right? God's people. Being involved in the church, that's number three. And then number four is my work. Now, like I said, some people flip this, where the work takes you know, priority over, over church life. But this is not the biblical pattern. This, this assumption that we have as the Christian hierarchy of, of those four priorities put in that order, that does not line up at all with what the, the Bible teaches. In fact, we know this that in one way, that, that if that were correct, um, Paul would take a different approach to writing this letter. Now, the first one is right, that God is the priority. God is number one, ought to be number one in all of our lives, but especially in the lives of Christians. And this is uh, affirmed here as we come to verse 6. He says, God, um, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he's showing this totality. It's not just that God is the first thing, but he's the thing that, that overrides all of our lives. He's the lens that we view all of our life through. So that's right, but then if, if family were number two, right, our, our family, and sometimes we think about, it, I've got my nuclear family that, that has priority, and then my extended family that sort of gets lumped into it, but, but that's not the approach that Paul takes, because if that were, the next thing that Paul would go into here in Ephesians in chapter four would be talking about the family dynamics. We could expect some sort of expose, this, this mini-series on marriage, or parenting, or family life, But instead, Paul goes straight into a mini-series on church life. Now, why is that? It's a little bit shocking to to see this reprioritized list here of God, church, family, work. Now, this all stems from Jesus' own ministry. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching at the synagogue. He, he's talking about the kingdom of God, this, this, this good news of repent um, and, and draw near. Put your faith in Jesus and you'll have access to the kingdom of heaven. As he's teaching, Jesus gets interrupted. Some of his disciples come up to him and say, Hey, Jesus, your mom, your brother, maybe it was James, are wanting you. So you've got you to stop what you're doing. They want you. Now, back in the first century, the nuclear family was really the top thing. That had the the highest weight, socially speaking, the biggest priority in people's life. And and Jesus doesn't say, okay, let me drop this to go go satisfy my mom and my brother. Jesus says this. He poses this question. He says, who who are my mother and my brothers? And he answers, it's those who do the will of God. Those are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. What Jesus is doing right now is very countercultural, not only uh, in our time, which is Countercultural, but also even more so because the the brother the sibling dynamic was was the strongest social uh, bond that they had in those first century. Jesus, in a very countercultural way, is putting a premium and a priority of what it means to be part of a church. Now the reason for this, NT Wright says this. He says Jesus was envisioning loyalty to himself and to his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. See, this is a family that doesn't compete with your nuclear family or extended family, but it's an extension of it. God is redefining what the family is and what makes us part of this family. Now, this is significant because if you sit back and look at this, not every Christian is going to marry. Like, there's some singles in this room, we love you, we're thankful to God for you, and we pray that God would bless you with marriage. But if you don't, you have a place in this church. There are some people who are going to get married but not have kids. So so the reason why Paul doesn't go right to that nuclear family is because there are some people that may not have that blessing, that privilege in their life. And God is going to sustain them and give them a different kind of blessing as they walk with Jesus through those scenarios. But here's the thing. Everyone who is part of the Christian faith, everybody who claims Jesus as Lord and Savior is part of this Christian family. This, this new um, family that Jesus is envisioning for his people. Every Christian is part of this family. It's this new creation of a new community, and it is the primary context where Jesus says, this is where ministry happens. The primary context for gospel ministry is the church. It's where discipleship happens. It's where mission happens. Now, of course, in our own homes, we're going to reflect that, right? We, we want the own, our own cultures of our own um, families to reflect what's going on in the church. But the church is really God's vision for showing the world who he is and what he's like. And like we've talked about earlier, some of the most glorious aspects of God's love can only be experienced among the body of saints. So that there's some things in the Christian faith that I can have this personal, individual relationship with Jesus it's gonna, be, it's gonna be sweet, it's gonna be satisfying, but there are also elements of the Christian life, of God's grace, of his love, that are only available to us when we find them in the context of the new Christian community. Yet many people have church experiences that are far less than glorious, all right? So on one hand, that's sort of what God has in mind, this glorious experience for the church, yet oftentimes churches fail at that. People maybe ha- have a bad taste of church. Um, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking about your previous church experiences where, where you've been hurt, you felt neglected, you've been ostracized, you've been judged, right? There's just things that that don't give you this warm, optimistic outlook on what the church is and what she's meant to be. And in some cases, The gospel could be preached. You hear about the good news of Jesus, of what he's done to save you from sin and death and the grave and to bring you into the glorious light of the kingdom of heaven. Yet, while the gospel message is present, what it lacks, what that kind of church lacks is a gospel culture. Not just the message, but the culture. It's an embodiment of that gospel message that you get to experience as you live life in this community. And, and really what, what Paul envisions for the church is a kind of community that holds both the gospel message and a gospel culture together. So not only do we profess and acknowledge the grace of Jesus that's to us in salvation, but we get to live into that in a daily communal way. And this is primarily the focus of chapters 4 and the first half of chapter 5 here in Ephesians. Paul is concerned. He's already, chapters 1 through 3, he's laid out the gospel message. This is the good news. This is who you are if your faith is in Christ. Now, this other part is establishing a gospel culture. And the place where he wants to establish a gospel culture first is here within the assembly of the saints, within the church. Leslie Newbegin says, the church is a place where the gospel is preached and lived by. It's a saving grace and a living grace. And the longer you spend with the church... The more you come to understand, let me caveat that, the longer that you spend inside of a church with a gospel culture, the more you understand the gospel and experience the gospel. And what this does, it stands in stark contrast, not only to the world around us, but the kind of churches that where people step into, it feels like they're being suffocated. They're being judged, they're being condemned, that's just not a place for them. And I think what Paul, as, as he unpacks this gospel culture, this is something I, I'm convinced that everyone in our city wants to experience. There's something about this that is so attractive. That's something that in our heart of hearts we, we long to know and experience. And so Paul helps us as a church. How do we live into this? What does it look like to embody this gospel culture? Now we're going to unpack that. So here we go. If you want to open up with me uh, again to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we'll start there. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, he's urging you, he's not saying, hey, take it or leave it. He's saying, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now here's how. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it feels like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul, here he goes, first thing he says, this is, this is maybe the first characteristic of a gospel culture, it's a humble place. It's a place of humility, to have humility towards one another. Now, in our, our culture, humility is viewed as weakness. If you're humble, it, it probably means that you have a, a bad sense of self-esteem. It means that, that you, um, you just don't think very highly of yourself, that there's something kind of, uh, there's a defect with you, because we have this tendency, it's like the mindset of it's a doggy dog world. If you're not, if somebody else is winning, it means that you're losing. And so this means that you have to step into it, and you got to do whatever you got to do to get ahead and get a leg up. Wherever there is a lack of humility... Pride will always emerge to fill that void. And wherever pride is, their community will be ruined. I think that's one of the reasons why like, good friendships are so hard to have in this social climate. Because right? we just are, are steeped in this, this environment of pride. It's like, it's like the water that we swim in. It's just full of pride and arrogance and, and self-assertion. It's this, this kind of me-first Mindset. Now, pride operates by comparison. It, it, it asks this big question of, "How do I stack up against this other person?" And as we ask ourselves this question, um, it might, depending on how we respond to this, it might manifest in two different ways. So, a lot of people think of pride just as this sort of um, boisterous, arrogant. Um, condemning, self exulting sort of thing, right? I think that is, that's one way that pride manifests. You got your nose up in the air, you're better than somebody else. But pride also works in the inverse, that as you look at other people and make your comparisons, you, you kind of hold your head down in shame. I, I'm never, never going to be as good as them. I can never do what they do. I can, and so this is it's like this reverse. Um, it's, it's the inverse of what we typically think pride is. It's still prideful. And the reason why this is is prideful is because both of these come with a preoccupation with myself. It's all about me. It's all about me and myself. And when I'm at the middle of my world, it's going to sabotage all of the relationships that I have. C.S. Lewis says this, pride is like a cancer that eats up the possibility of love. If you want to have that possibility of love, pride just... Cuts it out right under, underneath you. But, but he also gets into the, the, um, the vertical implications. Check this out. He says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. See, pride not only interferes with the relationships that that we're meant to have in the church family, but it keeps us from understanding who God is really, to really having a relationship with him. And so instead, Paul Paul says, listen, let's put put the knife to the throat of pride. Here's how you do this. You walk humbly. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, check this out, this is what what humility looks like, count others more significant than yourself. I don't know if there's anything more countercultural to our society than that idea of thinking of other people as more important than myself. It's been said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, right? Going back to the self-esteem thing. Humility does not mean having bad self-esteem. Humility is thinking of yourself less. More and more, your eyes focus on other people and what you can do to love, to serve them. This this is humility. The disposition of humility is to be others-oriented. It asks this question, God has placed me here For a specific time in this specific time and in this place for a specific reason, what would it look like for me to be a servant? What would it look like for me to be humble and be so confident in myself that I don't have to posture, I don't have to pretend, I don't have to self-assert myself, but I can take the role of a servant to bless, to honor, and to help other people. See, see, that's what that's what humility looks like. It's it's an others focused in our life. Now, when we talk about this, there, it sounds like, okay, yeah, humility sounds nice in theory, but when it comes down to it, when it comes down to brass tacks, who's going to look out for me? Right? If I'm thinking about other people and how I can serve them and love them and bless them, then who's going to look out for me? And in that moment, here's that pride rearing up again, right? It's looking out for number one. It's keeping myself at the center. Now, the answer to answer this question, thankfully, Jesus gives us to the, this answer here in Matthew 23. He says, God exalts the humble, which means that when you are humble, God is looking out for you. When you take the lowly position, God is eager to bless you, and it may not come right away, but there's this exaltation that will for sure come when Jesus comes to set all things right. But in God's eyes, he sees you, he protects you, he keeps you. So there's that reality, but then here's this other part, that if everybody in a community, so like if everybody right now has this other's first mentality, that means Somebody else is going to have their eyes locked on you. See, a culture of humility creates an ecosystem of service, of honor, of love. It's a place, and I think this is really the only place where you can do this, it's a place where human dignity is preserved. It's where somebody looks across the room and says, I see you, I love you, I want to bless you, and I'm willing to lay my life down in order to make it happen. And When everybody's doing this for each other, this is a beautiful thing, right? This is something that's so appealing. There's no posturing. There's no pretending. It's just this, this, this ecosystem of love and charity for each other. Humility creates this dance. Right. This is what we experience is this you go first. You go first. No, you go first. No, I insist you go first. And so it's this others oriented of let me lay, I'll, I'm glad to lay my life down. And, and somebody's going to do it for you too. Now, when, when we are immersed in this kind of humble ecosystem, this actually opens us up for really meaningful relationship because it means that I can serve you without having to keep a, an account. I don't have to keep score, and, and I, can, I can know that when you serve me, I, I don't have to like, you know, keep a balance sheet in my head of what I owe you now. Because it's humility just continues to offer myself for you, myself for you. That's, that's really the biggest distinction of, of a Christian mindset. It's, it's not you, you to serve my needs, it's me to serve the needs of this. Now, the second characteristic that Paul leans us into here is that this is, this is part of a gospel culture. This is what a gospel culture feels like, is, is that next word he says, in gentleness. Or in other words, with meekness. Now, again, this is another characteristic that our culture scoffs at, right? Because you got to get ahead, and to get ahead, you got you to put somebody else down to get ahead. But here, again, humility, like humility, gentleness isn't weakness. Gentleness is not weakness. In fact, it's the opposite, There's nothing more powerful, there's nothing more strong than gentleness, because gentleness is subdued and wisely deployed strength. Paul, through the Ephesians, has been talking about this incredible power that Christians have that comes through the Holy Spirit, right? Spirit is constantly pouring power and strength into us. So he's acknowledging the fact that in Christ we have power, we have the spiritual strength, And then he goes into, here is how you wield that strength towards the people who are in community with you. It's not this brute force that bulldozes. It's not reckless. It's not soft either. It's not like lovey-dovey, sort of nebulous, wishy-washy. There's a tender firmness that we see in the church. That... that, In Hebrews, it talks about let's not forsake the assembly. Let's not um, neglect spurring one another on in love and good works. So there there is definitely this push to the church that we're in community to help one another, to push each other, but we do so in a manner that's tender, that's gentle. We, We wield it carefully to help and to strengthen those we're in community with, not to hurt them, Not to lord it over them, but to enhance them. At our house, there's a lot of wrestling. We've got four boys, um, and so it's loud. We wrestle a lot. And at this season of life, I'm clearly the strongest of all my children. Uh, I'm praying the Lord will keep it that way for for many, many years. Uh, But as we wrestle, I I could clearly assert my strength and just whoop them boys. You know what I mean? Throwing kids left and right across the living room, dropping, you know, the, the jackhammer, doing that stuff. If, if I let my strength go unleashed, first of all, they're going to get hurt. And secondly, it's not going to be any fun. Because as as I kind of hold back my strength as I wield that in a way that that sort of suits them on their level. Not only is it fun and engaging, it it sort of uh, stirs up some sort of camaraderie, but it also is helping strengthen them. That, That they meet resistance in me, it's strengthening them, it's helping them grow in their own strength. My boys get stronger the more that I am withheld and subdue my strength. If I'm sensitive to their capabilities, then that gentle strength can be used to develop them. Now, the same is true in the church. When we exercise this gentle strength, like, hey, I've got this vision for your life. I see Jesus calling you into this. This is what it looks like to follow, to be an apprentice of Jesus We don't use brute strength. We don't bulldoze people. We don't knock them down and beat them up. It's this gentle urging. It's knowing where people are at and dealing with them in an appropriate and sensitive way where they will be most receptive to what we have for them. Now, here's one of the big downfalls of that, though. Gentleness is not always the most efficient (laughs) You know, um, I could, I could put this wrestling match over just in a second, (laughs) and then it's done. We're done wrestling. It's fine. We move on with our day. But if we operate out of brute force, it may be faster, but it will always have more damage than does good. So a frustration that we have with gentleness is that it's not fast. It's not quick. It's not efficient. And so Paul urges us in verse 2 he says to be patient with one another in loving forbearance Be patient with one another Now patience patience implies that we are waiting for something to happen Patience means that there is a goal. There is a, an intended outcome. There is an aim to what we're doing. So patience doesn't just mean like calling a truce and letting everybody say, hey, this is just who I am. And uh, I, I don't want Jesus to change me. This is, the, this is what you get. What you see is what you get. And you better get with it. Or, you know, no, no, no. Christian brothers and sisters have a vision for one another's life. It says, I see maybe just in part, not in whole, but in part, I see where God intends to take you. I see what God wants to do in your life. And I'm, I'm you know, I care enough about you to, to not let, let you be complacent. I care enough about you to, to urge you on, like just, just like Paul's doing, to urge us into this. So, it means to be patient. It means that we're waiting for something to happen. The church has an agenda, it has a pursuit. And Paul's actually going to specify that in chapter 4 in verse 13, where he says, The quest of the church is gospel maturity. That's what we're after, to present everyone blameless and mature in Christ. That's what we long to do. But the reality about this is, it's a long and slow process, and people are at different places in this journey. And so, as we're interacting with our brothers and sisters in the faith, faith, in the faith, in the faith, We're not just pushing, pushing, pushing. We're nudging gently, firmly, tenderly. Let's step into this this next thing of obedience to Jesus. It's long and it's slow, sometimes painfully slow. And and sometimes you can feel this. Like if if you've been an MC and you've been an MC for a season or two, you start to hear people kind of bringing up the same prayer requests. The same issue is coming up over and over and over again. And and there's this tendency that we have. I get it. And, you know, I'm an MC leader, and I tell you I'm not perfect. But this this reaction that we have is, come on. Are we doing this again? Are we seriously having this conversation for the dozenth time in the last three months? Now, this is where Christian forbearance, where Christian loving forbearance kicks in. Where we have to engage with this, to know that Jesus' love is at work in us and in the other people that we are doing life with and be committed to the long haul. Because without this this Christian loving forbearance, we're going to be tempted to bail, throw in the towel when the the season feels long, when it's not easy. We just want to jump ship. But Christian love has this sticktuitiveness. Look, this I can't even say it's not even a word I made it up. Sticktuitiveness that we just hang in there. We're in it for the long haul. We have this long vision, not only for our lives but for the lives of people we're doing life with in community. And it trusts that God is at work in the wait. God is at work in the wait. This is what enables our patience. And chances are, listen, chances are God is not only doing something in that other person's life, but also doing something in yours as you wait and as you pray, as you gently nudge them into following Jesus. Now, these three characteristics, humility, gentleness, loving forbearance, set us on a trajectory for unity. And really, this is, this is the main thing that Paul wants us to see here, that the church, the, the culture of the church is a unified body. Paul says in verse 3, actually verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this, this unity in the spirit is something that God has made Himself. We were told back in chapter two God has pulled down the dividing walls of hostility, that Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, um, Republicans, Democrats, black and white, have all been reconciled by the blood of Christ that the unity has already been established. But here, what Paul's urging us to is to maintain that unity. See, when pride flares up, when I have this me first mentality that's going to divorce, this is gonna lead this divorce of the church, divorce of the community, where it's my way or the highway. And Paul says, "You, you gotta put that pride to death so you can maintain unity that God has created. Not only that, but to have a zeal for it. Like, that be something that you're really excited about, that you're you're just completely okay with this being a pursuit all of the days of your life. As we see what Christ has done for us, Christians remember that we have far more in common with each other than we don't. And and Paul lists this off. It's the list of firsts, or ones, excuse me. Paul lists the ones, and there's seven of them here. He says, I'm going to have a hard time saying this without going to the, I don't know if you've seen this YouTube video of the, the guy in the food line, parking lot with the nunchucks, old video. Anybody seen it? Oh, man. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, two nunchucks. Great. <laughs> Look it up. I've been thinking about this for like the last two months. Okay, Paul lists these, these ones off, this unit. He's, he's showing us the uni- unified nature that we have here as Christians. He says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times. Now, Paul is, he's a rabbi. Paul Paul grew up in, in the Jewish tradition. The number seven means something very significant in the Jewish tradition. Seven is, is the number of completeness, of fullness. And so when Paul talks about this unity, he's talking about there, there's a fact of it's so satisfying. It's complete. There, there is no deviation. There is no um, breaking of this unity. It's a fullness. It's a complete unity. That in the gospel, we have this shared life together. We've been unified. We've been brought together. And each one is significant. There's one body. The body is, speaking of the body, the church there's one body that's been created by the one spirit. Jesse, you you called into the one hope. So we all share in this future trajectory of what God is doing. This is our singular hope. There aren't multiple hopes in the church. We have this one united vision of what God's doing, and it's renewing the cosmos to make it shine and display his glory. We've got this one hope. One Lord. There's one Lord. There's one Christ Jesus, the Savior of the world. There are no other gods. There are no other saviors. It's it's a a unified profession. It is Jesus that we cling to. There's one baptism. So the entry into the life of following Jesus, of uh, the beginning of apprenticing Jesus is this, this baptism. Everybody passes through the waters of baptism. The water itself might be different, but the baptismal waters are the same. He says you got the one baptism, one God and Father of all. He says, listen, We have the same Father. We're in the same family. All of this stuff Paul's pumping, guys, we are united in God, who is, verse six says this, he says, we're united in God, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, this is interesting. I I was doing some, um, I was doing my Bible plan reading, and I I came across um, Exodus. I was thinking, um, and, and this big section of Exodus is where um, God tells his people how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a place where God is going to dwell. And it's very beautiful. It's very ornate. There's a lot of specification, specifications about what it looks like. You have to, like the, the guy that's in, responsible for this is a skilled craftsman. He's charged, has all these dimensions, all of these specifications that have to be fulfilled uh, in, in order to, to be satisfactory to God. And the same thing that God does in Exodus, where he's telling them how to build the temple, God is doing what the church right now. This book of Ephesians is telling us what it looks like to be the dwelling place of God. It's giving exact specifications. See, the, when, God, when it says this in verse 6, that God is over all and through all and in all, that's temple language. Right, That the temple is the place where God dwells. And already Paul's told us that that the church is the temple, that we are living stones being placed together, bound together by the, the gospel of Jesus. The same thing is happening here. Specifications for the living temple. In other words, God is making us a fit dwelling place for himself. See, this is the glory of the church. The glory of the church isn't that we get it together. It's that God is among his people. That the church would be a sacred place of unity and of glory. Now, we're charged with this. We're urged to live in this way this this, um, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, right? Striving for unity. And if it's up to us to generate and to keep these specifications, we're going to fail. In fact, you stay around Sacred City Church for too long, and you'll find very quickly that we can't, we don't have this figured out. (laughs) We don't have it nailed down. We are very much an imperfect church where our humility is inconsistent, our patience fluctuates, our gentleness is either apathy or steamroller, Unity is not our default. We tend to sect up about politics or this view of this doctrine or or, uh, socioeconomic status. Like, there's this tendency for us, for the divisions to pull us apart, and we don't always demonstrate these characteristics. Like, any church, and, and I can say firsthand experience, especially at Sacred City, we don't do this perfectly. But this is the gospel. It's in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our shortcomings, in our lack of humility, in our lack of patience, in our um, our apathy and bulldozing tendencies. Jesus moves towards us. Jesus demonstrates these characteristics towards us. In fact, Jesus shows us humility in that he lays his life down for us. He dies for the unworthy. So Jesus looks at us, people who deserve to be kind of swept away in the destruction of the cosmos, and says, I'm going to lay my life down for I, I think of them more highly than I think of myself, which is crazy that the God of the universe says that about us. And he goes to the cross, he lays his life down for us. We see his gentleness where Jesus says, listen, I am lowly and gentle at heart. Jesus says, at the core of my being, I am gentle and I'm lowly. Now, there are moments where we see Jesus, like he flares up where he's not a softy. He's, he's not this wimp. Like Jesus is able, like he's the, he's the, he is the um, exact personification of s- subdued strength. Nobody's more powerful, yet Jesus says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly. So Jesus does not coerce. Jesus does not use brute force towards us to get us to fall in line. Jesus is tender toward us. He's like a, he's like a physician. You know, We've got our wounds. We've got our brokenness. A physician who comes in with, with a healing salve of the, of the gospel and applies it right, very tenderly, very gently to woo us into his arms. And Jesus shows us loving forbearance Deuteronomy talks about this as the characteristics of God, that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jesus, perfectly. I mean, like, think of this. Jesus walked around Galilee and that whole surrounding area with a bunch of knuckleheads for three years, doing life on life. And they said a bunch of stupid stuff. Peter was one of the guys who said a bunch of stupid stuff. One of them was going to betray him. Jesus was with them. He forbear with them. He knew their shortcomings and was patient with them, even quick to forgive. In fact, when, when Peter comes back, I mean, Peter, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die me three times as he's moving to the crucifixion. Peter says, I'll never do that. And then he does it. And then as, as Jesus is resurrected and he meets up with the disciples again, the thing that Jesus does is restores him. He shows this patience forbearance with 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 Peter because he, he affirms his love for him. Peter, do you love me? Oh, yeah, of course, Lord, I'd love you. Then go feed my sheep. There's just patience that Jesus has with his disciples. And he does this so that we can have unity with God and with one another. Now, last week I read through John 17, that whole chapter, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And, and I'm not going to do it again because it was long. But the, the main theme of that was Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to have what I have with the Father. I want you to have with me what I have with the Father. I want you to have with one another what I have with the Father. Jesus wants us to have this unity with God and each other. And so when we see the posture of Jesus, like he is right now, he's not looking down his nose at you disappointed. He's not looking at you like you got something, you got to put your act together if you want to, you know, get access to his loving kindness. Jesus right now is looking at you in humility and with gentleness and with patience. And when you see that posture of Jesus toward you right now, it just changes us. The, the, the great Savior, gentle and lowly, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This, this changes us from the inside out. This not only shows us the gospel, but gives us what the gospel feels like. And as it changes us on the individual level, it brings us into a community where these individuals make up the corporate. This, this kind of community is, is brought together by the unique bond that we have in the gospel, and this kind of community cannot be achieved apart from Jesus Christ. If you want to be part of a humble community, if you want to be part of a, a gentle community, if you want to be part of a, a patient and loving, loving, enduring community, you have to find it in Jesus. You can't find it anywhere else because it's in this community where you find every concession that you need for your slowness of faith at the same time being pushed toward your Savior of apprenticing him, of following his ways, of walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling in which you've already been called. And, and when we see this, we start to change. It, it reshapes us. It re our life for us. It makes us fit for the kingdom of heaven. It makes us fit to be the people in whom God himself dwells among. as we hear about the grace, as we experience the grace within the gospel community, that God goes to work. This is why, this is why the church is the number one place where ministry happens. It's the number one place for, for discipleship. It's the number one place for mission. God is developing a culture here in Sacred City and in all of the churches, all of uh, the Jesus-proclaiming churches, to not only explain and, and express and to, to declare what Jesus is like, but to let people experience it firsthand. And my prayer is that God would more and more and more do this here at Sacred City Church, that he would give us this bent, a gospel bent towards patience and humility and gentleness, zealous to keep unity. And the more that this happens here in Sacred City Church, the more attractive our church becomes to people who are not yet part of it. They see what God's doing here. Like God is doing something special, even miraculous. And people look from the outside in I want to be part of that. And the church with open arms says, come on in, brother. We're glad you're home. Because that's the kind of welcome that Jesus gives us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would have your way with us. Not just, not just solidify us in our identity as your sons and daughters, but teach us what it looks like to live out as a family of Christ. We ask that you would instill in us the spirit would supernaturally implant in us humility and gentleness Patience with a vision toward the future of what you're doing, but, but this this okayness with the slowness of the process. Would you make us a church that is more and more united by our profession of faith in Jesus than divided by the things that make us um, distinct from one another? And God, as as we see what Jesus, His demeanor towards us, that that, that would change us from the inside out. Help us. By your grace, do this good work in us for our good, for the good of our city, God, that so many would come to know who you are, that more and more, as we have more and more missional communities scattered throughout the city, as we have more churches planted throughout the region, God, that more people would get to see and experience, hear the good news, and experience the gospel of grace within the context of a local church. We pray this in in your mighty and powerful name. Amen.